You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 this evening. Um, and obviously, we are taking a break from the Gospel of Mark tonight and probably next week. Uh, I'm, I'm doing something that I've actually never done uh, in five and a half years of, of preaching so far. Uh, usually, don't break away from whatever sermon series that we're in. Uh, we were doing that this evening, and you guys will find out why here in a moment. But instead of being in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to consider Paul's command for us to put away hatred and instead forgive one another and love one another. When we assemble together on the Lord's Day, this isn't a show, right? This isn't a show uh, where I have to stick to the script of whatever book we're walking through. Um, My job as a pastor is to preach the Word of God and to shepherd the people of God according to the needs of the congregation or flock that God has entrusted me with. Uh, So in light of the need that I can see in our church at this point in time, it is fitting for us to look at the letter of Ephesians and look at this text in particular. And as I said before, this text is about loving one another and forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Now you all know, or I hope you know at least, that you have pretty free and open access uh, to Pastor Stephen and myself uh, for the most part. And he and I really do take seriously, or we try very much to take seriously, the shepherding aspect of our job, right? To pastor means to shepherd, right? So it's not just teaching, but it's counseling people. It's being, again, smelling like sheep. That's what shepherds do, right? So we take very seriously the the shepherding aspect of our job, not just to teach doctrine, but to meet people where they're at. Um, So we try to give each of you biblical counsel when the need arises in your life, and we are aware Right? We can't counsel what we're not aware of. But all that is to say, we know you guys pretty well. We know you guys pretty well. We know the kinds of problems you guys deal with, and we talk with you about those things and pray for you regularly about them and pray with you about those things. Um, and Pastor Stephen and I really love you guys. Like, I'm going to sound like a mom. More than you know, I think. We love you. Like Paul says, we are in anguish as if in childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Right? Paul talked about the, the anxiety that he has for all the churches, that they would be grown and, and would walk in maturity and walk in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. We love you guys. And we want to see each and every one of you walk closely with the Lord Jesus. We want each one of you, we want to see each one of you trusting in him and imitating him, repenting when you sin thinking biblically and walking in loving obedience to him. And just so you guys know, this is our great goal and mission as ministers of the gospel. It's two parts. One, to see people converted. And second, to see those converted walking with and growing in the Lord Jesus. So with all that said, we know the problems going on in your households. As Stephen prayed for the marriages in our church. We know the problems going on in many of your households. We know that there are marriages in this church that are unhealthy and are racked with sin right now. Absolutely racked with sin. We know that there are individuals in this church that have infighting in their families 
and in their extended families. We know that there's even some small-scale conflicts going on between members in our church. For a church with a membership of 37, we have a lot of stuff going on. So as your pastors, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about love and forgiveness this evening. And why these topics? Why these two, love and forgiveness specifically? Simply this, cat's out of the bag, here it goes. A lack of love and a lack of forgiveness are the dual reasons that our relationships most often deteriorate. A lack of love and a lack of forgiveness are usually the two reasons that our relationships are in the gutter. Hear me out. If everyone really deeply loved one another as God in Christ has loved us, then we would quite literally never sin against each other. And if you you think that I'm, I'm exaggerating, we sin against each other because we don't love one another. And I say that because the Lord Jesus Christ himself says the summary of commandments 5 through 10 is love one another as you love yourselves. Love your neighbor as you love yourselves, rather. And if we're quick not only to love one another, but if we're quick to forgive one another then we are, when we are sinned against, as God in Christ has forgiven us, then our relationships would be quick to heal. And bitterness and resentment and hatred would have no place to grow Why? Because the love of God would push them out as we display his love towards one another. I know that quite a few of you married couples are in a really, really dark place with each other. You can't stand each other, or at least you feel like you can't stand each other. Maybe you've even considered getting a divorce, even though you have no biblical grounds for it at all. I know that some of you have never fully forgiven some of your family members for the wrongs that they've done to you and you walk in bitterness towards them on a daily basis. I know that some of you don't care much for your fellow members in this church or for some of your fellow members in this church and you don't have much patience with them. You don't have much grace for them and honestly you try to avoid them as best you can and, and, and you don't really want to know them and you maybe even subconsciously have begun to nitpick everything that they do in your mind. Brothers and sisters, these things should not be so amongst the people of God. We are called to put away anger and hatred and instead love one another as we have been loved by God. Now I want to be clear before we actually hop into this text. There is, and if you've heard me, if if I've ever done counseling with you, you've heard me say this a thousand times. There is no magic silver bullet sermon or counseling session that's going to fix all of your problems and make everything perfect. That's stupid. That doesn't exist. If such bullets existed, I would shoot everyone all the time. You can laugh. It's all right. There's no magic silver bullet, right? But we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Paul says in Romans 12. And that renewal happens as we sit under and submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God and His Spirit as He works in us by the Word. So my hope in this sermon is that by God's grace, He will work love and forgiveness in your hearts as you are first confronted with your own sin. That can be summed up in a word, hatred. And secondly, that he would work love and forgiveness in you as you behold 
the great love and kindness of God found in our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you. So with that said, let's go ahead and read our text this evening. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. This is the word of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Our God who is love, please teach us what it means to forgive one another. Please open our hearts to receive your word and soften our hearts, God, and chip away at whatever stubbornness might be there. We ask in humility, God, that you would overcome us, that you would break our wills, and that you would rule over us by your love. Please teach us to be more like our Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask for this in his name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our passage this evening comes to us at the end of Paul exhorting the Ephesians to live in unity with one another since they've been made into new people by God through Christ, right? That's the context here. Paul's talking about the old man is gone, the new man has come. Now, in light of that, live in unity with one another because there was a lot of problems going on with the church in Ephesus. They, they were always nipping at each other. The Jews and the Gentiles get, didn't get along with one another, and Paul's writing this letter that there might be unity in the church. And Paul's telling us in this passage that in light of the fact that we are Christians, in light of the fact that the old man we once were is dead, in light of our being made new creations in Christ, as Paul says to his letter, in the, uh, letter to the Corinthians, in light of that, we are to put off our old sinful ways. And whenever you put off something, you must then put something else on. Put those sinful ways off and put on righteousness that is befitting the people of God. So our text begins with Paul exhorting believers to put away something. And in a word, if I could sum up verse 31, put away hatred. Put away hatred. And, and listen to me real quick. Like our brother David Allison said some months back, when you have a relationship with someone and you think about hatred and your relationship to them, and then you have to sit and try to convince or, or justify yourself, and, and you have to say, no, I don't really hate them, at least I don't think I hate them, then you can almost be certain that you hate them. At least according to the standard of the Bible, right? We, we learned in that big, long, nine-month series through First John, John taught us that if you don't love, then you hate that there is no middle ground. If you don't love someone, then you by default must hate them. So listen to me, please. All of you. I implore you, by the authority that God has given me as a pastor over this congregation, to think deeply about the relationships that you have conflict in. Go ahead and get it in your head now. Think deeply about this. This may be your marriage. This may be your relationship to your parents. 
This may be your relationship with your coworkers, with your children, with your friends, with your fellow church members. Wherever that there might be conflict or bad feelings, I want you to be thinking about that relationship as you hear the word of God. Think about those things and hear what God says speaking to that situation in this passage. I beg you, do not harden your heart to what God is saying here in these verses as we walk through them. Listen. Be humble and be teachable. Please don't be stubborn to the lordship of Christ this evening like the Pharisees were that we saw last week whenever Jesus talked to them. They just sat in silence because they refused to admit that he was right. Please don't be like that. Listen and submit yourself to the authority of God. Let's read verse 31 again. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What Paul is doing here is he's giving us an escalating list of negative feelings and behaviors. Right? That's what he's doing. It's an escalating list, and then he's telling us, put those things away. Cast those things away from you. And I just want to briefly walk through each one of these terms so that you guys can get an idea for what exactly Paul is saying the people of God are to cast away, like get away from that nonsense. And here's what they are. Bitterness. Bitterness is the first stirrings of hatred for someone. That's why I list it first. These are the first stirrings of hatred. This is resentment for another person. Right, and again... Please be thinking about your own relationships with people. This is bitterness. This is resentment, stirrings of hatred. You're bitter toward this person. And this is almost always over a past action. It's over some kind of past wrong. right? Someone has done something to you. They've sinned against you in some way. And now when you think of them, there is no sweetness whenever you consider them. When they come to your mind, there's no delight at all. There's no joy whenever you think about them. There's no desire to be around them. You have become soured toward that person. You're bitter in your heart. Again, this is the beginnings of hatred. And if this goes unchecked, what do we know about our heart? It eventually finds its way into our actions, doesn't it? Jesus says whatever is in your heart is going to come out your mouth. He doesn't just mean isolated only to what you say, but whatever is in your heart is going to manifest itself externally. If this bitterness goes unchecked, it is going to progress into your actions. But here, amazingly, Paul is saying, check your emotions. God save us. We live in a culture that says, I can't help how I feel. Paul says, you better help it. <laughs> Paul, says, I, Paul commands us, put away bitterness. Yes, I want you to know God is so sovereign that he can actually command you to keep your emotions in boundaries. I want you to know that. How you're going to respond to that emotion, if you're going to feed it, or if you're going to try to put it away. Yes, we believe in a big sovereign God. He can command even your emotions. He says, don't allow yourself to become bitter towards someone. Put that away from you. The second word, he says, put all bitterness and wrath. Wrath is an outburst of rage. All right, tell me if this doesn't sound familiar with some of your relationships. This is where you take a quick shot at someone you're angry with. Right, you take quick shots at them. This probably manifests itself most often in your speech or some kind of spiteful action that you do to intentionally hurt the person that you're upset with. 
right? You're mad at them for some reason, maybe a legitimate reason that you're upset with them, and then you just decide to give vent to your wrath for just a moment and take some shots at the person who upset you. This isn't an all-consuming thing. You're not always angry with them, but there's some bitterness. There's some resentment for something that they did, so you take your shot quickly because they've offended you. That is incredibly common, is it not? Usually we call them tiffs. Oh, it wasn't a fight with my spouse. We got in a little tiff yesterday. Paul calls that wrath. And Paul says, put wrath away. Anger is our third one. Put all bitterness and wrath and anger away. This is darker. This is a long-lasting, slow-burn hatred. Anger. You're consumed with anger. The, the, the bitterness has set in, and it's went unchecked, and it's festered in your heart towards someone, and all that you are is angry toward them. Again, it's consuming. This is your constant posture towards that person. I can't stand them for what they've done to me. I can't stand that person. I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to be around them. All I am is angry. The next word is clamor. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. This word in the original, in the original language has a connotation of being loud. Right? Loud noises. This is shouting at one another. Again, think about your relationships here. This is shouting at one another. Where the bitterness has turned into anger and the anger gives way to a screaming match. This is what we normally call a fight. Right? Not a fist fight, but you fought with your spouse, you fought with your parents, you fought with your sibling, whatever it might be. Right? You, you let your anger bubble over into a shouting match where you're just, let's be honest, just trying to cut the other person down with whatever it is that you're saying. To sound like a Puritan for a moment, you're doing violence with your words. You're intentionally trying to hurt someone with what you're saying. This isn't a conversation. This isn't even an emotional or heated conversation. This is just plainly exercising your rage towards someone else with your words. Clamor. Next to last, we have slander. All bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. This could mean telling bold lies about the person that you're angry with. Right? We've all been tempted to do it. I know that this would hurt their reputation. I could make up something about them. And people would probably believe me because he's a jerk. Right? You've thought that. But there are other connotations for this word slander, like things that you're probably more tempted to do, like exaggerating the faults of another person. Don't we do that whenever we're mad at people? Whenever someone's hurt us? We exaggerate their faults. I, I, we demonize them. There's nothing good about that person anymore. They are the sum total of everything that they've ever done wrong. We demonize them. And, you, and, and you're talking to others about this person. That you're, talking like, you're talking to others about this person in this way. You're mad at your spouse, so you go talk to your friends and you demonize them. You exaggerate their faults. You're mad at your dad, so you go and you exaggerate their faults to your siblings. This could be gossiping, right? Where, where maybe what you're saying is true. Right? That's what we like. That's a big excuse. It's not gossip if it's true. That's stupid. That's not biblical. Right? Something you can gossip and it be absolutely true. You're saying something and it might be true, but you're saying it to someone who has literally no business knowing. No business at all. And furthermore, your motive 
for spreading the information about the person you're angry with is to make other people think less of them. You're trying to damage their reputation. That's what this slandering is. Actively seeking to harm the reputation of the person you're not getting along with. The person who's hurt you. And the final term Paul uses is malice. And this is any kind of ungodly behavior or ill will toward another person. The apostle was brilliant here. He uses what I call a catch-all term. Right? In case you thought that maybe you were going to squeeze something in because he wasn't specific enough on the first five terms, well, I could do this then when I'm mad at someone. No. He says, all malice, all ill will that you might have. And again, this malice is where you actively want bad things to happen to someone. You're not seeking their good. You're acting spiteful towards them. You desire their harm in some way, whether it's a big thing, like you want them to die, Right? Murder comes from malice, or whether it's small, you just want to ruin their day a little bit because you're angry with them. You don't want God to bless them. In fact, you want God and everyone else to be angry with them as you are angry with them. You don't want to do any good for the person. Again, you're full of malice toward them. You want to harm them in any way that you think you can get away with. To be full of malice is to be full of spite and to desire someone's destruction. And for all of these things, Paul says, all bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, Paul says they all, all of it, is to be put away from you. This is the command of the apostle. And we're going to talk once we get back to Mark about what apostleship means. But suffice it to say this evening, by extension, since it's the command of the apostle Paul, it is a command of Almighty God himself. To be an apostle means to be a sent messenger on behalf of the one who sent you. Jesus declared Paul to be an apostle. He says, when Paul speaks on matters of faith and doctrine, I'm speaking through him. This is a command of God. I want you to see it that way. This isn't Paul just saying, here's my advice to you if you're having some problems with people. Is put these things away. No, Paul says, I implore you by the command of Almighty God, put these things away. I'm an apostle. Right, from our inner, inner negative, bitter feelings towards someone to our ungodly actions, Paul says all of it is to be put away. And I would almost guarantee you that if you're having conflicts in your home or with other people, you are guilty of one or more or all of these things that Paul says we're to put away. Be honest with yourself. And don't think about the other person. I want you to think about you. Right? And if that other person's not here this evening to hear this sermon, trust me, God is sovereign and the people who need to hear this are here right now. Think about you. I want to make a note here in telling us to, to put it all away. Put it away from you. Paul is telling us that this is going to take effort, is he not? Whenever you have filthy clothes on, right, like you've cut the grass or whatever and you're nasty, it does take some effort to put those clothes off of you so that you can put on clean clothes, right? This is going to take some force. It's going to take some effort. It's going to take some exertion to put these things away from yourself. It takes a conscious effort and decision to keep away from things like this. Paul's telling us that we have a moral imperative to check our emotions and our actions, rebuke ourselves for them if they're sinful, and put them away. This doesn't just happen. 
It's intentionally, I'm putting them away. Things don't put themselves away, do they? It's intentional. So Paul is not leaving you any room to say, I can't help how I feel. And Paul's not leaving you any room to say, I can't help it. That person just makes me so angry. That's no excuse. We are to make a conscious effort and decision to put those things away from us and keep from them to master our emotions, to make decisions about how we're going to respond in godliness to even those who hurt us. So I say that to actually encourage you. I know it sounds like I'm being fairly harsh right now. I'm just giving you the command. And it is a command, and I want you to see it that way. That's why I'm using the tone that I'm using. Too often we view the commands of God as good advice. That's not how it goes. But I want to encourage you with that, the idea that this takes effort. Don't be surprised if this does not come easily. Few times does godliness come easily. Very rarely does godliness come easily to anybody. And even the most godly saint is still only made a little bit of progress in the grand scheme of becoming holy like God. It's always going to take a lot of effort. I want to encourage you with that. The text itself implies that this is going to take effort. But if we are to put those kinds of things off, if we're to take those things away as the people of God, then what are we to put on? What are we to do instead? Because we always have to replace ungodly actions and behaviors and attitudes with godly ones. If you don't, you will revert back to the old thing. Right? You have to take it off, put something else on, or you will go back to what you once did. I promise. That's the principle here. What are we supposed to do then? Verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's your imperative. Be kind, be tender-hearted, and forgive one another. We're to be kind. So instead of being full of hate and rage and resentment and bitterness and spite and anger, we are to be kind. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to be kind? It sounds like a Sunday school thing. Be kind, right? The 11th commandment, be nice. Um, What does it mean to be kind? This phrase is actually used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or the LXX. If you've ever read commentaries, that's what they're talking about. The Greek version of the Old Testament uses this phrase, be kind, or this word kindness, and it uses it often, all the time when talking about God to denote how God acts towards his creation and especially how he acts towards his people that he's in covenant with. He's kind to them. So think about God. What What does it mean that God is kind to his people? Well, God is constantly showing mercy and extending help to us, is he not? Every day. Always. He's always doing what is best for us. He's always a help to us. It's okay to call God a helper. The Bible calls God a helper. Like We have a bad connotation of that in our culture now. But he is a constant help to us, a, a comfort to us, and a strength for us. Right? So, so to, you could put it this way. To be kind, actually some translations say this, um, again from the Greek, is to do good. So legit, you could legitimately say Paul is saying be good to one another. Right? That sounds a little bit southern, right? Be good to each other, y'all. Right? But that kind of gets the point across, I feel like, a little bit better for us, maybe. Be good to each other. And this is so open-ended and broad, isn't it? Be kind to one another. That's, that's super broad. 
That's on purpose. That's on purpose. Any way that you can be kind, Paul says, be kind. Any way that you might be good to another person, you are to be good to them. Just as God is constantly doing good for people, we should be seeking ways to do good for others, to help them, to serve them in some way, to, again, really sounding Southern, to do a kindness for someone, to do a kindness for another person. Instead of acting in anger and spite, we should be actively seeking ways to do good for other people, even, and especially in this context, those who have hurt us in some way. Love your enemies, right? Love your enemies. Even if they're really not your enemy, because I don't think your spouse is your enemy, but they feel like your enemy sometimes. Right? Whatever the relationship might be, I know I'm hitting marriages pretty hard. I just know that's necessary for our church right now. Right? You're supposed to love your spouse. Vody Bauckham put it this way. Well, I don't really feel like she's my wife. She feels more like my enemy. Well, Jesus says love your enemies too, so you don't have an excuse. Love them. Paul says we're also to be tenderhearted. This means to be quick to show mercy, quick to be compassionate, quick to pity people in their distress, or to be merciful, tender-hearted, hurting when we see someone else hurt because we want to do good. We want the best for everyone, even the one who hurt you. You're tender-hearted toward them. You're quick to have mercy and show compassion to them. You're, You're quick to act on their behalf and jump to their aid because you love them. Again, as as God does to his people. And lastly, Paul says we are to forgive one another. This. That's the hard one. Is it not? That's the hard one. Because you can fake the other two. Have you ever been fake kind? You do it all the time. Like, don't lie to yourself, right? You've been fake kind. You've been fake tender-hearted towards people. You can fake that because those, those are, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're supposed to be motivated from a right heart. You can do good actions for people. Now Paul says forgive one another. You can't fake that. Or, or sure, you can, I guess, but in your heart you can't at all. Forgive one another. And I think this is the hardest because of precisely what it means to forgive someone. So I want to be clear about some stuff. To forgive is not to brush under the rug what someone has done wrong to you. That's not forgiveness. It's, forgiveness is not to ignore that you've been sinned against. That's not what forgiveness is. I, I want to be clear. When we're talking about loving and forgiving people that you're in conflict with, I'm not saying that they've not done you wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I am not saying that the offender is innocent And you just need to get over what happened. That's not biblical. That's not how the people of God handle problems. right? Especially with you married people. There are going to have to be difficult sit-down conversations with one another. There's going to need to be apologizing on both sides. I would almost guarantee it to one degree or another. There may even need to be some counseling. Right? We're not going to brush the problem under the rug and pretend like nothing happened. That's stupid and you're setting yourself up for failure in the future. That's not forgiveness. Just brushing it under the rug and acting like everything's fine. That's not forgiveness. But forgiveness does mean that you are going to absorb the wrong that was done to you. That is forgiveness. To absorb the wrong that was done. 
The, the person who has done wrong to you and hurt you, they owe you something, do they not? That's why we get mad. Like, they owe me something. They owe me, like, an emotional debt, and they have not paid. Right? They've hurt you in some way, and they owe you. And I say that because sin always creates some kind of a debt, doesn't it? And, and I get that because of, or rather, we see that whenever we consider that we owe God for our sin, do we not? Or rather, he owes us eternal damnation for our sin. Sin always creates some kind of a debt. But to forgive someone means that while acknowledging that you've been sinned against, you're going to forgive that person. True? Is this not how God forgives us? Show me one verse in the Bible where someone repents and God says, you didn't do anything wrong, it's okay, we'll just forget about it. No. The Bible uses words like God pardons the sinner. Right? Or to put it another way, he grants amnesty to the sinner. What does that mean? You did wrong. You sinned. And I'm going to forgive you. We don't act like nothing happened. We acknowledge we've been sinned against, but to forgive means you're going to take the debt that they owe you and literally forgive their debt like you would if someone owed you money. You're going to, as it were, bury that debt. And you're no longer going to hold the record of their wrongs, the record of that debt against them any longer. You are going to fully and freely absolve them of what they owe you because of their sin against you. And you're going to push forward with them. You're going to push forward in that relationship towards restoration and reconciliation. You're going to forge along or ahead with that relationship in spite of the wrong that they've done. At least as much as it depends upon you, because sometimes they're not willing to be reconciled or repent, and then you can't go on any further. But as much as it depends upon you, you're going to absorb the debt and want to be reconciled. That's forgiveness. That's forgiveness. And, and that's what Paul says we are to put on instead of harboring hatred and bitterness and spite. And I'm sure you're thinking what any of us think when we're confronted with this. Paul, that is too much. That is, that's a tall order, right? Like, like, let's keep it real for a minute, right? Like, no one in here is Jesus, right? This is difficult. This is an incredibly lofty, I mean, you want to talk about Christian principles, Right, This is about as lofty as it can get. Forgive one another. Be kind and tenderhearted towards one another. These are high ideals. How in the world are we to find it within ourselves to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving to those who have hurt us or those with whom we're angry with? Uh, simply put, you're not going to find it in yourself. It's not there. You're a sinner. You're not going to find that just within yourself. But you are going to find it by looking to God's love in Christ. You don't find it in yourself. You find it outside of yourself in God. Verse 32, again, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The forgiveness that we've received from God through Christ is our motivation for this. It is our strength to do everything that Paul has commanded so far, whether it be put off or put on. Right? Like, how 
are, are we to forgive others and love others and put away all bitterness and anger? Paul says, by remembering what God has done for you. Now, I mean that, like, please, really, like, take a moment to think about that and remember. Remember. It's one of the most frequent commands you see in the Old Testament. Remember. Remember what God did. Remember this. Remember what God did. We ask ourselves these questions when we're upset. How can I forgive them for what they've done? How can I push forward to reconciliation? We think this. I didn't deserve for them to do those things to me, so why should I forgive them? And if you're asking those questions, let me ask you a question, Christian. Have you forgotten? God help us. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the great mercy that God has shown you in Christ? Have you forgot the record of wrong that God has put away through the blood of Christ? You've been sinned against. Not, not taking that away from you. I don't deny that. I get that. I've been sinned against. It hurts. You've been offended by what someone else did. But that pales in comparison to what you've done against God. I just think about this for a minute. We don't think about God this way, I think. The holy God, the pure and innocent God. You don't think about that, do you? He's innocent. He's never done anything wrong to anyone ever. He's righteous in all that he does. He's just in all of his decisions. He's never done a single wrong to anyone. He's never been anything but good. And he made you and he sustains you. He gives you every good thing that you have. Everything that you have comes from him. The one who is innocent and pure kindness and pure love. The only being who truly deserves no wrong done to him. The only one who actually deserves your absolute allegiance and every ounce of your love and you've sinned against him. You've sinned against that God. We say, I don't deserve them to have done that to me. How can I forgive them? Do you know who you've sinned against? The innocent one. I've said this before, and this might, might be misunderstood. I can clarify myself later. Sinners, to one degree or another, kind of deserve to get sinned against sometimes, but God is the innocent one. You've scorned his goodness, sinner. All of us, every one of us. You've scorned his goodness. You've scorned his kindness in your rebellion against him. You've refused to submit to him. You've chosen your own ways over his righteous ways. You've chosen to be a false god over your life, and you've worshipped your own will instead of worshipping him. You've blasphemed his name, literally and metaphorically in your actions. You've laughed in the face of his warnings. You've encouraged others to sin. You've abused the kindness and patience of God more times than you can remember. You've broken His commandments times without number. You've spat in the face of the one who created you and tried to take His throne from Him in your willful and glad sinning. And what did He do in return? Christian, what did He do in return? Did He show you bitterness? Did He show you wrath? Did he show you anger? Far from it. Far from it. 
in love. He sent his only begotten son to die for the sins that you've committed against him. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to suffer the punishment of God that you deserve for your sins against the innocent one. And then, by the blood of Christ, God forgave you of all of your sins. As Paul says in Colossians, he took the record of wrongs that you had done against him and put them away by nailing them to the cross of Christ. It's as if God opened up the hand of his son, put the record of debt that you had, and then drove a nail through it himself. He put away the record of wrongs that you have done. He forgave you. I pray to God that that phrase sticks with us. God forgave you. And his forgiveness is for all of your sins. Every one of them. Past, present, and future. All of it. The love of God shines forth to us in the cross of Christ, does it not? The great forgiveness of God shines forth to us in the cross of Christ. He forgave you. He's a compassionate God. He's a kind God, tender-hearted towards you, forgiving you in Christ. We love this. This is why we're here. This is what we're going to celebrate in the Lord's table here in a little while. We love this. This is the sweetness of our religion. God forgave me. Jesus died for me. I deserve nothing but damnation from the innocent, just God. And he loved me anyway and forgave me. This is the basis for our forgiving and loving other people. This is the entire basis for it. That's what Paul is saying here. As God and Christ forgave you, there's your reason. There's your motive. There's your strength to do so. Right, let's, let's go further with this. Consider the continued mercy, right? So you're like, God forgave me, right? Consider, like, as, in like, as if like, that was like a one-time instance. Sometimes we think that because we like to use the phrasing, I got saved, right? Like past action, which it was. God justified you. Boom, done deal. You're justified. That's awesome. I'm not trying to, I know I sound like I'm being a little bit bad with that. We agree with that. We believe that. That was a past action. But God continues to forgive you. Christ secured the forgiveness for all your future sins. And God continues to dish out forgiveness to you. Can, how often do you sin? Like, keep it real. And if you say not very often, you're in the wrong church. You sin every day. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. You haven't done that for two seconds today. Love God with every fiber of your being. Are you kidding me? You haven't done that. How often do you sin? How many times that you are aware of, right? So these are probably bigger sins. How many times are you aware of that you sinned against God this past week? And he forgives. He forgave you in Christ. How could, be, how could we then be recipients of such grace and kindness on a daily basis and then continue to hate one another and walk in bitterness and unforgiveness? It's like the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 18 of the man who goes to the, I believe it was a king, and he owed him years worth of money. No way does he, can he pay this back. He owes this man like $10 billion, we'll say. No way can he pay it back. And he says, please have mercy on me. And the king says, I forgive you. I forgive your debt. And then the man walks out from the presence of the king 
and he walks down the street and sees a man who owes him, let's say, $100, pins him up against the wall and says, pay what you owe or I'll send you to prison. That's what you look like when you don't forgive people. That's what I look like when I don't forgive people. I'm not just pointing the finger here. This is all of us. How can we receive this kind of forgiveness and then walk in bitterness towards other people and refuse to forgive them? You can see how this doesn't match up. It's not consistent. And let's be honest, it's a disgusting contradiction, isn't it? When, when we don't tolerate this in other people, do we? We don't tolerate this at all in other people. We call those people hypocrites. We don't like that. And yet we walk in it more often than we want to admit it. God help us to see our own hypocrisy in loving the gospel, in loving being forgiven, but not wanting to forgive other people. I'll make a note here. All offenses against us, write this down, remember this. All offenses against us are relatively small compared to our sin against God. They might not be small compared to other human beings and what's happened to them, but all sins against us are relatively small when we compare them to our sin against God. So how could we not forgive people who sin against us? I'm not saying that your pain isn't real. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying your pain's not real. I'm not saying that you have not been grievously sinned against. I'm not saying that you don't have a right to even righteous anger sometimes. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. Your sin against God is more grievous than your husband's sin against you. Your sin against God is more terrible than anyone's sin against you. It's more heinous than your wife's sins against you. It's more heinous than anyone's sins against you. And God forgave you. He forgave you. He reconciled you to himself. How could you not then forgive others and attempt to be reconciled to them? It's just not consistent. Every single one of us deserves to perish forever under the righteous wrath of God. Every single person in this room has broken every single one of God's commandments in some way. If you don't think so, please let me talk to you for five minutes after church is over. You've broken all of them. Every single person in this room is a sinner. And yet in spite of that, God has shown us sinners great mercy in Christ. And if you think that I'm beating a dead horse, I'm doing it on purpose. We forget because we are slow of heart and stubborn. He forgives us. He's shown us mercy. He's forgiven us. Because forgiveness and grace is always in spite of sinners and their sin. So he forgives sinners in spite of us. He's forgiven us and we have peace with him, so how then can we go on hating? We're, we're, we're getting toward the end here. Let me give you some exhortations. Married people. Married people. Please. By the mercy of God, given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive one another and seek to walk in unity, please. Church members, be patient with one another and forgive one another as God has done with you. People with fighting in your families, 
Forgive them and strive for peace with them like God has given you peace with them. And to those of you who have no conflicts right now and life is easy, praise God. I'm so, so glad. I mean that. Praise God. Restore these things in your heart because the day will come. Store these things up in your heart that you might not sin against God. Reflecting on the gospel, reflecting on the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ is the only place that you're going to find the fuel to forgive like this. It's the only place that you're going to find the desire to be kind-hearted and tender-hearted towards one another. It is the love of God that compels us, is it not? It is His love that compels us. It is the love of God that, Paul says in Romans 5, has been poured into our hearts as His people that then compels us to forgive even the greatest offenses. We know what kind of sinners that we are. And we know the mercy that we've received. And as the people of God, we want to show everyone else what that mercy and forgiveness looks like. Now, nobody can deny how beautiful and appropriate and godly that this principle is. No one can deny it. Even an unbeliever would look at that and say, that's a high and lofty moral principle. No one can deny this. Christian, you can't deny how straightforward and just logical that this all is from the Bible. But the question is, will you apply it? Like This is like rubber meets the road, right? Will you apply it? God save us from a cold, dead orthodoxy where we know the doctrines, we know what the Word says, and we don't want to comply and obey. Will you put forth the effort that Paul implies it's going to take to obey this gospel-rooted commandment? Will you actively, consciously strive to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all malice? Will you actively, consciously strive to forgive others as God in Christ forgave you? Or will you sit there under the preaching of the word of God? Will you sit there under the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and remain hard-hearted toward those you're in conflict with? Woe to us. Woe to us if we are not moved in our hearts to repentance and action by the mercy of God given to us in Christ. Don't be stubborn against the Lord. You know the word is true. You know this is the right way to live. You know that obedience is the only proper response to the salvation you have been given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Don't be hard-hearted. Repent. Forgive. Love one another. I'll read the passage again and then we'll pray. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that you have forgiven us. God, we love grace. We love being recipients of the good news. We love receiving mercy from you. But God, we are so slow and stubborn to show that to other people. God, I pray that you would prick our hearts and grant us repentance. 
pray you teach us what it is to love. Help us to imitate your son. Help us to imitate you. Bless us and help us, God. We have no strength to do this in and of ourselves. But through Christ, through the change that you've given us in him, and through his example and us meditating on that, we know that we find strength to obey your commands. So Lord, please help us. Pray this all in his name. Amen.